I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. New York Congressman Peter King is a member of a dying breed, a pragmatic Republican who has prided himself on being able to work with members on both sides of the political aisle. But in perhaps another sign of the polarized world we now live in, King just announced that after 14 terms in the House, he won't be seeking re-election. And yet King, who represents a district in the Long Island suburbs, remains a staunch defender of President Trump arguing, as he did in a tweet after last week's public hearings, that the Democrats have not produced any evidence of anything impeachable. How does King justify his position? We'll find out and press him on the future of the dwindling number of moderate members of his party on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crooked. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I suspect that a lot of our listeners cannot comprehend where Republicans are coming from on this impeachment debate. That watching the hearings, they find them mouthing talking points that seem out of joint with what the evidence is. So, you know, I've been really interested in in hearing King, who's a usually reasonable guy who can talk to members on both sides of the aisle, uh, you know, who uh, kind of has a certain upbeat, optimistic side to him that seems out of joint in the time we're in, how he could come down as such a staunch defender of the president. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, as you said, he's pragmatic. He's like a a machine, Paul, in a way. He comes out of that Nassau County machine. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was a era when politicians, they, they could fight and they could fight dirty and they could be partisan, but they were also transactional. You know, they wanted mm-hmm. to get stuff done. And so right. they did deals. They were deal yeah. makers, kind of like, sort like of like Trump, right? Yeah. And maybe that and maybe, you know, I imagine mm-hmm. that there's probably in some ways some kind of cultural affinities between uh, Trump and uh, and King, although King, I think, has working class roots, not Trump. They do both come from Queens. But it's going to be fascinating to hear him talk about Trump. It's interesting because, you know, he he has been a fairly moderate member of Congress. But in the Trump era, like just about all of them, he's been kind of lockstep defending this president. Yeah. I, I should point out that there is a consistency there in the sense that he was one of only five Republicans who voted against impeaching Bill Clinton. So, you know, this may be, as he sees it, a part of a larger philosophical framework about the dangers of impeaching a president and overturning the results of an election. Right. There's one thing for standing up for a principle like that. It is another thing if you are defending 
this president's kind of conduct all the way through, you know, beyond the question of impeachment. Um, yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see right. whether he makes any kind of distinctions there. Especially this week when we have some really momentous testimony coming up. I think we've all been uh, anticipating Gordon Sondland, who was the ambassador to the European Union, who was Trump's guy on the ground in Ukraine, who was pushing for the investigations into the Bidens and supposed Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. He kind of, when he first got up there and testified and closed doors. He denied that he was aware of any linkage between the uh, demand for investigations and the suspension of military aid. He had to amend his testimony once, but then we got this even more damning testimony from David Holmes, the State Department official who was there in the Kiev restaurant when Sondland gets the phone call from President Trump and then tells everybody there, President Trump doesn't give a shit about the Ukraine, but he does care <laughs> about those investigations into the Bidens. Yeah, I, I love that detail and that quote because it seems to be somewhat at odds with a lot of the Republican talking points from last week's hearings in which they said, well, that phone call was all about corruption. The president just wants to investigate corruption. Because he wants to root out corruption in Ukraine. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of one of his foreign policy goals, that we clean up all those corrupt countries uh, that surround uh, the Russian Federation. I also love the fact that, at least as reported in the New York Times, that Sondland uh, actually held up the phone in this Ukrainian restaurant for everyone right. to listen to what Trump was saying. It's just a great image. Right. Yes, know? it is. But and, look, and- he, he is, he is at least up to now, uh, Sondland is the pivotal witness in this investigation. Uh, according to uh, another national security uh, official who is also testifying this week, Tim Morrison, Sondland spoke to Trump about all of this for as many as uh, six, uh, six times. And, you know, the thing that we don't know is what those direct conversations between Trump and Sondland were about and whether Trump directed Sondland to deliver the quid pro quo to the Ukrainians, which you know, Sondland has said that he delivered it at the sidelines of a meeting in Warsaw on September 1st, but we have not heard his testimony about how that came to uh, to be and whether it was a direct order from Trump, um, that will be a bombshell if, if that ends right. up being and, and we should point out that David Holmes, the State Department official who was there in the Kiev restaurant, who heard the phone call, who heard what Sondland said after the phone call, is going to be testifying at the end of the week after Sondland. So uh, that will be pretty gripping as well. But let's get right to um, our guest for the day, Peter King. Okay, we are here now with uh, Congressman Peter King of Long Island, who just announced after 14 terms, he's not going to be running for re-election. Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Michael, great to see you again. Good to be here. So let's start out. Why are you leaving the House now? Yeah, it was a tough decision. Mainly, it ended up being family. I know any time a politician says that, it usually means he's about to get indicted or something, uh, or some picture is going to appear. Basically, I'm not a big vacation guy, and I've been down here 28 years, it'll be, you know, 28 years, four days a week, and I spend most of my time with my children and grandchildren, and my daughter, and my daughter only lived two minutes from my house, so that was a, lot, a good part of my life. 
And she uh, found out in September, she and her husband and the kids have to move to North Carolina. And so, and also she was in politics, I was in politics. We used to conspire and collude together and uh, that sort of kept us going. And uh, I guess the tipping point came when I was trying to make Christmas reservations to you know, visit my grandchildren. And I, I can't do it because we have no idea when we're getting out. It was December 12th, then it's the 20th. Now there's a... Uh, be- because you're going to be voting on impeachment. Impeachment and also the timing not to go to government shutdown on the 21st. That's when the uh, government's going to run out of funding. So, I mean, that's no problem to anybody else. And people say, who cares? He can't get a plane ticket home. I figured after 28 years, I should be able to go see my grandchildren. So <laughs> and that just convinced me it's going to be just more of that over the next three years. Because I... I yeah, I would expect to get reelected next year. So anyway, just personal decision. I felt to spend more time, have more freedom of movement. I am 75. I'd be almost 79 at the end of my next term. But I'm in excellent health. My wife is in good health. So I wanted to take advantage of it and uh, go on to greater things. I'm not going to retire from the world of life. I'm still going to get a job somewhere, maybe several jobs, see what I can do, stay active. So, Congressman, we're going to get to impeachment, uh, which yeah. you just mentioned, uh, or I guess Isakoff mentioned mm-hmm. a second ago. Uh, but before, just one follow-up on this, which is a lot of members of Congress, when they retire, they say they want to spend more time with their family. Right. But some of them also say that they're leaving um, in part because of what's going on in Washington, the partisanship, the nasty tone, and it's just not as fun and edifying as it used to be. Is that any part of your calculation for leaving now? No, it really wasn't. And uh, being in the minority isn't either. I mean, all these things, you know, you'd love to have a nice, easy life down here where both parties loved each other and we had a solid majority and I'd be chairman of all these committees. No, I, uh, to me, uh, just being here was it was the honor, whether it was the majority or, or the minority. Obviously, one is better than the other, but both of them are great. Uh, no, that, that wasn't it. I'm not, because uh, I, I never took any of this stuff that personally anyway, as far as whether some guy likes me or doesn't like me or whether they're yelling. It'd be easier. We can get more done if there was more tranquility, but that was not a reason. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is because you are one of the few moderate Republicans left, at least that's been your image over the years. I'm just sitting here in your office. I see pictures of, you know, Bill Clinton, Richard Nixon, George Bush, Barack Obama. Um, You're a guy who clearly has um, gotten along with and worked with people on all sides. Yet we are in this polarized moment right now, which a lot of people blame on President Trump and uh, see him as a exceedingly polarized figure. We want to understand because you have defended the president on the Ukraine allegations. You've indicated you have no intention of, of voting for his impeachment. Oh, based on what I've seen and heard yeah, so far. Based yeah. on what, so I think we want to understand a little bit, you know, how somebody with your moderate record has come down where you have in defending President Trump. Yeah, and really it's defending the Constitution. Same reason I voted against Bill Clinton's impeachment. To me, and, and this way I'm really a traditionalist, uh, there's a reason that we went from, what, 1792 to 1998, that's, uh, what, I'm losing track, that's 206 years without having an, a, a successful impeachment. And uh, even then, in 1988, well, we it still haven't yeah. had a successful impeachment. Yeah, right, impeachment. so you had Andrew Johnson uh, in 1866, Six, or whatever it was, yeah. and then you had... 68. 68, yeah, yeah, then you had Bill Clinton, so it's two in over 200 years. And to me, this is the uh, nuclear option, this is the uh, death sentence. To undo an election, which really is the highlight of a democracy, is that certainly in ours, because we're not a parliamentary system, the country comes together to vote for a president. To undo that 
you need more than sex in the Oval Office and you need more than a phone call, which I think was appropriate anyway, but even if it weren't, it's not a basis. Do you really think the phone call was appropriate? It was okay to ask a foreign leader to launch an investigation of your political rival, uh, Joe Biden? I would make the argument that it was almost a responsibility to do it. The fact that Biden is an opponent has to be secondary. As president, if you're giving aid to a, a, a country which has been rooted in corruption and where there's been uh, allegations, especially with energy companies being involved in corruption, and you have the fact that uh, to make sure there is no corruption, and you know there is, there is significant evidence when you have the vice president's son getting over a million dollars for basically a no-show job where he has no experience in energy, no knowledge of Ukraine, at the time when Joe Biden is supposed to be investigated, listen, we went almost three years investigating Russia and there was zero evidence of collusion. And yet everybody thought that was appropriate. And uh, yet Hillary Clinton, using a bitter spy to get phony information from Russian intelligence, you had the FBI and the CIA abusing their powers on collusion when there was none. There was far more evidence of uh, misconduct with Joe Biden than there was with Donald Trump. All right. Well, let, with Joe Biden himself, you well, have any that, indication uh, that evidence, former Vice President well, Biden if, did well, anything improper did he, or was do? acting in any way to of. further his, his son's interest as opposed to U.S national security interests and the foreign policy adopted by the U.S. government. Well, by Donald Trump, because President Obama refused to give weapons to Ukraine, and Donald Trump has, so we start with that. Now, on this, for instance, if you're the vice president and you know your son is getting a million dollars from a corrupt company in a corrupt country, and your job is to root out corruption, and you don't do anything about it, it raises serious issues. That's okay, what I'm saying. An, they should be investigated. An error of judgment, maybe, for not doing anything it about it. Be. But, 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 it could be. I mean, it's certainly worth investigating. But, do you, but any evidence of wrongdoing by Vice President Biden? There's certainly evidence of conflict of interest, and that's why you have to have an investigation. To find but out why, how far why it goes. is that up to the Ukrainian government to investigate? To show that if this serious. is if this is a conflict of interest, this is a conflict of interest by Biden. Because it's their company. It's their company. Burisma was a Ukrainian company. And to me, this is important to find out. I have no doubt that if this involved Russia and it was Hillary Clinton and she says to him, before we make this deal, I want to make sure how involved was Trump as far as the last election. People would have said, God, she's really saving democracy. So I want to go back to what you said at the beginning yeah. of this, which is that not only did Trump not do anything wrong in this conversation, but it was his responsibility right. to do what he did. So a lot of Democrats have been saying that the president put his political interests above U.S. national interests. And I, what I hear you saying is the president put interests of the United States right. and American that, foreign that policy his above yeah. his personal interests. That's what you believe. I'm saying that was his He was carrying out a presidential prerogative and presidential obligation. And you really don't think he was primarily driven by what say, was in his own political interest here? I would say that you know, guy, he didn't he didn't talk about corruption in general in Ukraine. There are a lot of corrupt characters in Ukraine, a lot of mm -hmm. corrupt oligarchs. Right. Uh, it's you know pretty endemic. And this was not a request for sort of institutional changes to fight corruption. It was about a particular matter that happened to be related to his own well, political it's a, it's a, interest. It's a pretty big matter. You're talking about you know, well over a million dollars, and it did affect the uh, previous administration. To the Obama administration, they knew about it. They didn't do anything about it. Now, for instance, the uh, ambassador, she said when she was being briefed for her confirmation hearing, the State Department was uh, instructing her how to answer questions about Joe Biden's son working for the energy company. So they were certainly aware of it. So then was the, was the president's call 
perfect, as he's described it? No, I would say that uh, he, sh he should have handled it differently, but I'm just saying it's not impeachable and it's not, it's not wrong. Now, and there's always, listen, anytime you make a foreign, not anytime, often you make a foreign policy decision, there's primary and secondary effect. The primary is to help the country, secondary, and maybe close to being primary, is to help yourself politically. What should he have done differently? Uh, I, I wouldn't have said do me a favor. That's his, that's, that's his way of talking. But I mean, for instance, what did President Obama mean when he leaned over to Medvedev and said, tell Vladimir after the election we can have a better deal or we can work, work things out? I mean, that's to me is asking Putin not to be attacking him during the campaign. So just to be clear, if you had an opportunity to talk to him before he made this call and were advising him, what would you have told him? I would say don't say anything that could be misinterpreted by the media or by your political opponents. <laughs> Which he clearly did. <laughs> Yo, know, he, uh, again, I'm, I, I can't give you specific examples, but he says a lot of things when you're with him that are politically incorrect, like things where he has no reason to trust me or others not to go to the media and get a headline story. Not that there's anything corrupt. I mean, he just says things that the guy in, now he doesn't drink, but he, he says things that the guy in the neighborhood boss says. And, uh, you know, so... Yeah, but look, you know, I think a lot of people when they read the transcript, I mean, they saw through it right away that this was to ask about the Bidens was just something I know, that the former seemed... vice president's son and the vice president was all about it, getting over a million dollars from a corrupt company in a country that we're trying to reform. And Joe Biden's supposed to be in charge of making sure the reforms happen. It raises issues. What about the other part of the favor about, you know, these what he was saying about CrowdStrike and the missing DNC server and all, you know, all of which is, you know, largely debunked conspiracy theories. There's no evidence that there's a missing Democratic National Committee server in Kiev someplace or any doubt. I don't think there's any doubt in your mind that it was the Russians who interfered in our election in 2016, correct? I mean, yeah, as far as far, yeah. as, as, far as I know, I think about the yeah. emails was Russia. There was some Ukrainian involvement. I mean, Politico had the story about how right. there was some documents. But being not exchanged. a concerted government no, effort no. to I agree. mess no, I don't who told him that? And uh, again, uh, but there's nothing impeachable about that. Like if you have evidence, if there was uh, somebody in the Ukrainian government who was doing that, fine. But he wasn't. He said, "Check it out." Okay, you know, that was lingering in his mind, I guess. Well, at the same time, he suspended military assistance yeah, but, yeah, for a country. Didn't even know about it at the time. Right, but but Trump had done that. He had cut off military assistance at the just before that phone call. I think a week or so before. You know, and a lot of people look at that and say, yeah. Yeah, but uh, you can tie all this together. I mean, did Barack Obama know that Russian intelligence was giving enemy, uh, information to British intelligence to use against President Trump in the campaign? And the FBI director was going to use that as a basis to spy for the first time ever on a presidential campaign? You know, you can always tie these things together. Or when uh, Obama told Medvedev to tell Vladimir, I'm going to go, you know, uh, better deals after the election, then he decides not to uh, uh, supply weapons to Ukraine, not, and, he, and he invites uh, Russia back into Syria. He can always make up conspiracy theories. I just think President Trump could have been more uh, discreet in how he did it, and, uh, but he, he's, he's different. <laughs> uh, Congressman, before the show, you uh, you said that you got a, a lift back on Air Force One. The uh, president offered you a ride back right. on his plane to D.C. from New York. What did he uh, say to you about this whole impeachment process? What was he thinking about it? And feeling? Yeah, we didn't go into details about the conversation. It was basically that he did nothing wrong. He was just trying to figure out how the votes would be, when, what the time schedule would be. It was more of a uh, the assumption of the whole conversation. 
And also Mark Meadows was uh, with me. We were on, uh, as he went in from the uh, Trump Tower in the uh, limousine down to the Wall Street heliport. And we took Marine One to JFK and then the uh, Air Force One to Washington. And I'd say only because that's three separate conversations, but they all uh, presumed that he was innocent. And how is it going to work in the, in the House and Senate? That was so. The, we never get into the you know the merits of the case. Did he ask you whether you thought uh, that he would lose any uh, Republican votes in the House? He was right then relying on the fact that he had not uh, that he had kept all the Republican votes, and he was he seemed fairly optimistic he'd be able to do that. Yeah. But he's counting the votes. Oh yeah, no, he's counting the votes. Yeah, no, he's uh, he, he follows this stuff very. I mean, that, that's almost like a guy who follows baseball box scores. He knows who's for him and who's against him at any given time, or who may be against him at any given time. Well, are there going to be any Republican defections that vote for impeachment? I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm not going to give you any names. I, there's two or three that were possible, but I think that, that as this is... We saw Will Hurd walking down the hall a little while ago. Yeah, well, Will, uh, I think also, again, uh, I don't want to speak for Will Hurd. I, I right now don't see anyone, but, you know, people... But you said maybe issues. possibly two or three. Only there's been two or three who, before it started, uh, showed some concern. Yeah. And uh, how about uh, Democrats who might not? Um, there were two who voted not to yeah. um, authorize the inquiry. Yeah, there's a few more. Uh, and again, I don't want to be putting them on the spot, but I, I could see a few more. Possibly. Again, this thing is taken on such a partisan dimension anyway. It's hard to. Uh, so I, I would think that there'd be extraordinary pressure on them, but I also. I've had a number of Democrats come to me, not necessarily for good government reasons, just saying, just I wish we weren't doing this, because they're from districts that Trump carried, or Trump has, this could almost be something like a uh, NRA gun vote in that the Republicans, or the people who like Trump, are never going to forget if you, if you vote for his impeachment. And they just, in some of these closer districts, they don't want to have that built in opposition for something that they feel is not that strong a case. And we should point out that you are one of the few Republicans who bucks the NRA quite a bit as a right. supporter okay, of yeah. uh, gun control measures. Yeah. Yes. yeah, I was just trying to think of something that would, like when you built, yeah. again, I, and I have a built-in group of pro-gun people who, you know, never forgive me. I can I can get a medal for doing something uh, involving health care, and they'll go on Facebook, but you know, took away our Second Amendment rights, and you're right. trying to steal my gun. So, no, I mean, it's I think there could be some on the Democratic side who, I mean, was it 39, whatever the number of Democrats was who got elected in seats that Trump carried in mm -hmm. 2016. I know they're hearing from those, you know, those voters now. If a person feels strongly about impeachment, I think they will vote for it. If they don't think it's such a great idea to go into it now that this was driven by the base, and it's going on longer than they thought. I think they were hoping to get it over by Thanksgiving. That was the original oh, intention. Yeah. Also, we should point out that I think you're the only member of Congress who voted against impeachment um, in the Bill Clinton case and leaning heavily toward right. voting against impeachment uh, in, in this right. case. Um, I want to ask Which you— Which either means I'm never wrong or I'm never right. <laughs> <laughs> why why uh, would you vote against Clinton's impeachment? Again, it just didn't rise to the level of impeachment. And I said at the time, I mean, think of it, what it can really get down to it, I mean, strip everything else away, is the president is undergoing a civil, uh, in a civil lawsuit, being questioned about whether or not he had an affair with someone while he, he's in office and he's been asked this. And uh, to put, if he said yes, that would have ended his presidency. He had nothing to do with being president, really. And uh, I just say, this is going to come back, it's going to come back to haunt. You know, a lot of people in, could in the future come back. What, what, 
Republicans were doing to Clinton at the time can be used against us. I don't see it being the same here, but if you get somebody, uh, I think of all the presidents who may have had extramarital affairs, and if they were under oath, uh, how would they have answered the question? That's all. I just thought it was a bad. There's so many, to me, uh, you know, there's abuses of power, and that, now, I don't know if Bill Clinton would survive today in the Me Too movement era. But well, so you were reelected many times after that. But after that vote, um, did you uh, experience the ire of your uh, constituents yeah, at all? Yeah, I, 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 well, I, I did. But I mean, it was, uh, on the other hand, Bill Clinton had carried my district. But it, it was, I mean, the Republicans to this day, I mean, the day after I announced that I was not running for Congress, Newsday ran letters to the editor. The first letter they printed was the guy who said, this happened 20 years too late. He should have left the day he voted against Bill Clinton's speaker. <laughs> so that's <laughs> so. So it's, people it's, have uh, long memories. Uh, <laughs> yeah, people yeah. who hate have long. Uh, and again, it's on both sides. All of us still. Yeah. Uh, you're much more likely to remember a negative than you are a positive. Right. Uh, so I mean, I think a lot of the people who agreed with me on voting against Bill Clinton's impeachment that sort of faded. But for those who really hated Clinton and saw this is the chance to get him. And I think there's a lot of Democrats who feel that way about Trump, this is the time to get him. And uh, there's also, though, on the other hand, there's you know, Republicans who feel it's re you're really hurting an innocent guy here. So anyway. Uh, you so just, have, you, have you been? You saw Clinton last week, right? I mean, uh, I saw at, him at Wednesday a, night, yeah, Wednesday right, night. At a yeah. gun control event, Actually Thursday right? night, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was, yeah. He was there. Did yeah. you have a chance to discuss uh, impeachment with him? No, he just, no, I, I don't bring that up unless he does. No, <laughs> no I, yeah. I made Trump's no, impeachment. No, yeah. yeah, but one leads to the other. Right. Uh, yes. In fact, he what, just. What does he, he and Trump have in common? In fact, he had just been on CNN that afternoon. I think that was one of the questions I asked him. Since you've been through an impeachment, what advice would you give Donald Trump? You know? <laughs> That's something about the baseball signing thing. And some guy asked Bill Buckner to sign the picture of him having uh, Mookie Wilson's hit go through his legs and yeah. ask him to autograph it. You know, why bring those things up? Uh, I guess that was a point. In any event, no, he just said, uh, so you're going to be leaving? And I said, I'm surprised. Okay, well, enjoy it. And he laughed, you know. He was, then he asked, you know, then my wife was there, he was talking to her, and he asked me how my cousins in Ireland are doing, and, uh, you know, it was, it was Bill Clinton's job. Right. So ha have you been <coughs> following these uh, impeachment hearings? Have you been yeah, watching? Yeah, I guess as, as carefully as I can. I try to schedule things around so I can watch them on, on television. I've read, I have all uh, the transcripts over there. What do you think of these, uh, these witnesses so far? Uh, Bill Taylor, George Kent, the ambassador um, from Ukraine, Masha Yovanovitch. Yeah. Uh, Again, none of it to me goes, goes to the issue. I mean, what you're doing is, uh, there's different concepts here too. The career people, and I went through some of this with Bill Clinton, they dislike Trump from the start because he is going through irregular channels, as they call it. I saw Bill Clinton do this on Northern Ireland. He took the Irish issue away from the State Department. He just blocked them out altogether. And that drove the British crazy and the State Department crazy. And he had people like me. First, he had Tony Lake, manager from the White House. But he also had people like me. I took messages over to Jerry Adams. We went back and forth. Different preconditions to get the ceasefire back. And uh, and State Department was out of it. When the, uh, the real break came, uh, two of them. One was when he gave a uh, visa to Jerry Adams in 94, when the State Department was unanimously against it. He gave it to him anyway. But then the following year, Adams wanted a, uh, asked to be invited to the White House uh, St. Patrick's Day party, which was a big diplomatic thing if that would happen. The British, thinking things were the same, went to the State Department, and they made their case. The British minister went to the State Department and was assured that Adams would not be invited. Well, Clinton went ahead and invited him. 
and that showed the State Department was out of it after that. They were never told what was going on or whatever. He didn't trust them. The career diplomats, one of the ways they got back at Clinton was by going after Jean Kennedy Smith, who was his sister, who was the ambassador to Dublin. Suddenly, the IG did a report that there was so much money spent on decorations, so much money spent on whatever, right. all stuff that you could probably go after every ambassador in the world for. They really went after her. They were furious, the, right. the State But look, people. I mean, Clinton's efforts, however he went about them, were about trying to bring peace to Northern Ireland. The testimony over, over the last week has been pretty clear that this was being driven by Rudy Giuliani with his, you know, sidekicks, Parnes and Fruman, who had their own interests, mm -hmm. uh, business interests they were trying to promote. And, you know, and Rudy Giuliani's clear priority here was to get dirt, get information about the Bidens that could be used politically to protect and help his client, the president of the United States. That's not a general foreign policy interest of the United States. No. This was very specific about trying to help the president politically. And is that okay in your book? Well, first of all, you asked me uh, to assess their testimony. Their testimony, I think, was driven initially and uh, if it wasn't Ukraine, it would have been something else. The, the Korea Foreign Service people, who are in many ways arrogant, I'm not saying Taylor was, these guys think they make policy, they bury policy, just like the State Department was pro-Arabist, and they're certainly pro-British against the Irish. They just do what they want to do, and Trump is ending that. He's turning our system upside down. I give him credit for that. Now, whether they like Giuliani or not, you know, I mean, during the Bay of Pigs, John Kennedy used, who was the guy from, John Scali from ABC News, he used his brother, they went outside diplomatic channels to do it. They didn't In tell furtherance of legitimate foreign well, first, policy and legitimate, national security But to root out corruption States. in Ukraine, when the president, unlike who's not pro-Russian like Obama was in his Ukraine policy, right. that was a sarcastic remark I was making. Uh, no, but the fact is, he gave them blankets instead of bullets, Obama right. did. Yes. Trump is giving them now weapons to kill Russians with. And to make sure that it's going right, he wants to root out the corruption. And if there's a personal motive that there, yeah, I can add to the it. The testimony sure. from David Holmes, who was the State Department official who was in the Kiev restaurant on July 26th when Gordon Sondland gets the phone call from Trump, it was that Sondland says the only thing <clears throat> Trump cares about is the investigation. Yeah, well, in fact, the Biden's. quote is, yeah. Trump doesn't give a shit about Ukraine. Yeah, well, again, that's good. that could be Sondland's interpretation of it, too. So I'm just saying Trump... It also kind of sounds like Trump. Yeah, he talks away about a lot of things, by the way. <laughs> sure said, you know, God knows what he's saying about me now that I'm not running. So I'm just saying, uh, no, uh, actually, it's a good friendship. No, that's the way he talks. But, I mean, uh, the investigation, the only way you can show that the Ukraine was serious about it, he felt, was to have an investigation. Are they serious about rooting this out, or are they going to give a free ride to the Obama administration on this? So... Now, listen, I'm not saying this is perfect diplomacy, but I'm saying it's not impeachable. That's the point here. The fact that we're even arguing it yeah. shows you, that it's not impeachable. Yeah. I mean, nobody was defending what Bill Clinton did with Monica Lewinsky. Uh, there, was no, there was no other side to it. There was one side, and that was it. And this one, there is a government purpose and a political benefit. So do you think that withholding the uh, military assistance was therefore legitimate to put pressure on Ukraine to, I think it's to a good way to use pressure because they got it in the end anyway. And again, this is stuff they never got from Obama to begin with. And to me, it's a way to use pressure, yeah. I think, you have to, I think we have to realize, and I'm, 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 I disagree with the president on a number of foreign policy. I disagree with them on, on Syria. I disagree with them on, uh, I have questions about North Korea, the way it's going. 
And uh, even with TPP, I thought that was as much of a military move against China as it was economic to TPP, because you'll be able to line up all these countries to block China. <clears throat> so I have, I have disagreements with him. But he has a different style of doing things. And even if you heard him talk about TPP, if you heard him talk about South Korea and troops in South Korea and North Korea, and I get a really blue-collar, street-corner style. So, and so it's, it's the way he talks. <laughs> but so freezing the military aid is a legitimate um, well, threatening tool. To. He had to September 30th to do it, and it was, it was released. I'm sorry, what did you... I said threatening to do it can be legitimate, yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about corruption. the, the, the uh, polarized climate we're in. And let's start it with the polarization in the House here, because you really have two entirely different views of reality between the D's and the R's on this. And, you know, you listen to Adam Schiff, with whom you served for many years right. on the Intelligence Committee. And this was clearly an abuse of power, an abuse of office, a president right. using the powers of his office to advance his political interests and Republicans saying things along the lines of what you're saying. I guess my question for somebody who's been here as long as you have is, how did we get to this place where there is no common ground between Republicans and Democrats? Yeah, if, if you want to say it's all Trump, there's no doubt Donald Trump is partly responsible for this is style. But I think he was just taking advantage of something that was really developing. You could say it goes back to Clarence Thomas. You could say it goes back to uh, the Clinton impeachment. I said at the time we were setting, the Republicans were setting something in motion that's going to uh, it's, you can't make impeachment an ordinary part of political debate. Uh, they had done that. And then you had basically I mean, the fact that Bill Clinton, I was here. I, even back in 1993, I had some Republicans who wouldn't walk in on the, on the uh, east side of the Capitol because that's the side the Democrats walked in. They would walk all the way around and come in to the House floor you know, from the west side. That's how strongly they, they felt you know, uh, being against Bill Clinton. A lot of the people, Republicans who voted against impeachment of Clinton absolutely hated him from the minute he was, he was elected. Uh, then you had uh, President Bush, where people said he knew about 9-11, he allowed it to happen, he lied to get us into the Iraq war. You had that, then you had President Obama, who uh, had, I guess, an unsurpassed number of death threats against him, I guess partly because he was African-American, the first African-American. So you had all this building up. And the fact that you also had really unusual, Republicans swept the House in 94, the Democrats swept it in 06, we swept it in 2010. You know, that, it showed an underlying turbulence that was there. And I think that instead of Donald Trump being elected in 2016, if Hillary had been elected, I think you would have seen, saying this about my own party, you would have seen Republicans acting toward her the way Democrats did to, uh, are doing toward, toward uh, Donald There'd Trump. There would probably be articles of impeachment. Yeah, I agree, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they would tie it into the Clinton Foundation and yeah. uh, who they had dinner with and who made a donation to the Clinton Foundation and... What did they're going to find something Hillary did as Secretary of State that could have a double or triple meaning to it? Yeah. How, how dispiriting do you find that? I mean, that, What's this, that? How, that this has gone on and this is just part of the political culture. Yeah, it really bothers me. That's not the reason I'm leaving, but it is. That should not be. I uh, believe me, I come out of Nassau County politics, so I'm not some person who uh, has a uh, Pollyanna's view <laughs> of what goes on in the world. But there are things you fight over and things you don't. And I think that using impeachment or bring questioning the validity of an election. And this, I'll give Al Gore credit forever for really letting the 2000 election go. I mean, he could have dragged that out for weeks and months and kept it, made it a keystone of for the next three years. So I really give him, that would never happen again. I can't imagine an election like 2000 happening again. 
and whoever was declared the loser accepting it. Well, but you you do seem to excuse President Trump of um, a lot of conduct that I can't believe you actually are you actually approve of. Starting, let's just take last week when while Marie Ivanovich, a career diplomat, <clears throat> is testifying, he starts tweeting and you know suggesting somehow she was responsible right. for Somalia, which was totally ridiculous. And but this is very much the way he operates. He'll go after people mercilessly, attacking them, smearing their reputations, and you can't find that very satisfying. No, I don't agree with a lot of stuff he says, but I make that clear. But, but none of that is impeachable. And his defense would be But that, wait, are you just at the point saying, well, it's it's not impeachable. I don't like what he's... I don't hear you saying I strongly disapprove well, of also, some of that Well, we're in a world where for two years done. or three years the Democratic Party said he was a Soviet spy. I mean, that was, that was the... Which well, is the worst thing you can say. Asset, Russian, Russian. But, but, well, yeah, you know, okay. I mean, let's face it, the President of the United States is a Russian yeah. asset or a spy yeah. or a, a fellow traveler or whatever. I mean, so that's yeah. pretty harsh stuff. And you had Brennan and Comey and Clapper and the others, uh, you know. So I, he's he feels under siege, so he strikes back. I think everyone should sort of use the expression to take a time out, go back to the corner and take a deep breath. Have you ever told him that? Not ex I've never been involved with him. It, Here's one of the things with the uh, news cycle today, especially the Trump news cycle. What we're talking about today is going to be forgotten next week. And uh, it's not like where you have something that sits out there for two months. If I brought up to him next Thursday, this, this would be like old news. If something has happened that day, you try to steer it that way. But, uh, but there seems like something like that does happen every day. <laughs> it, it does. Well, okay. Well, if you're down there, and there have been times I've mentioned things, but I'm not going to go into any detail. Not in a, you know, a critical way, but I would say, hey, I would do this, or why don't you do that, you know? What are you uh, hearing from your constituents back home on this? Not as much as you would think. And I, uh, I'm in public a lot. I mean, I go to local diners, restaurants, I hang out at uh, local ball games and everything. And this, maybe this proves your point or mine or neither one of ours, is that people have come to filter out both Trump supporters and to a large extent his opponents, filter out a lot of what he says. And there's just so much of it coming their way, and they just that's the that's the way things are, are today. And they think on impeachment, from what I can gather, and I haven't done a poll on it, they're probably thinking, you know, maybe maybe he did screw up, but you don't impeach a guy for that. Let's just try and go on with the government. Uh, so I would say only the hardcore Democrats strongly feel there should be impeachment, and only the hardcore Republicans feel that everything Donald Trump is right. They just block out. They say the economy is doing pretty well. Certainly, until the thing in Syria, they could say that ISIS had been pretty much crushed, and they, things are going pretty well. I mean, it's, the country is not doing that badly, and that's the other thing. Where, which is another reason. I, I mean, listen, I'm I'm sure there's going to be people out there uh, listening who would say uh, it's, it's easy for you to say you got a government job, you're doing fine. But if you look at all the numbers, the country is doing better now than it has in most times. Certainly, in proportion to the anger. We have. I mean, if people wanted to get mad, it would have been during the Depression. You had Depression, you had World War II, you had the Korean War, you had all that, you had Vietnam. And I've never seen the type of anger that's been out there. And that's, what the, that's the anger that elected Donald Trump. I was going to say, do you, do you think that uh, all that anger that helped him get elected is still out there? And do you think he's going to be reelected because of the anger? Uh, I, I don't know. I also think it was the anger that was out there that made Bernie Sanders run such a strong race against Hillary Clinton. I mean, I was in the house with Bernie for what, 10 years or whatever it was, 
And nobody ever took Bernie that seriously. I mean, nobody was critical of him, but he had, I don't think he ever had any legislation passed. He was never known for any particular cause he was espousing other than he was a socialist. And he was unknown. His name ID was probably less than 1% by the, when he announced he was running for president. And yet, because he was going to uproot the system, and this democratic system was corrupt, and the Democratic Party was controlled by corrupt bosses, uh, this is him saying it, not me. I'm just, that, was the, that was the thrust of his campaign. He, he, in many ways, defeated Hillary. I mean, if it weren't for the uh, Korea delegates or the uh, super delegates, super super delegates, delegates yeah. uh, you know, it would have been a lot closer. And considering all the money that she had, all of the organizational support she had, Bernie Sanders never should have run that strong a race. And Donald Trump, I mean, up against Jeb Bush, up against uh, Marco Rubio, up against Chris Christie, I mean, all of these people. For him to win, it showed a real anger on both sides. Uh, I saw a poll, I don't know if it's accurate, but after the election, uh, people said, ah, uh, anybody could have beaten Hillary Clinton. It's really shown that only Trump could have beaten her because he was the only one that was outside the system. Just like Bernie Sanders probably ran a stronger uh, race against her than almost any of the other prominent Democrats would have. The fact that nobody knew him, the fact that he was this rabble rouser from Vermont, a socialist with hair all over the place, and you know, <laughs> uh, he was the kind of guy they were looking for. I should point out that you are, I, I think, uh, a couple years younger than him. So, uh, yeah. you know, uh, is there <laughs> is there a political future beyond this uh, house seat for you? If I survive uh, this podcast, you never know. <laughs> no, 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 there's not. I'm. Uh, uh, it's no. The is no. First of all, nobody's asking me to, and the answer is no. Uh, there's different chapters in your life, and I'm on to another right. one. Whatever. Let, let me just do, before you okay. get that. Do you think Trump wins again? Right now, I say yes, but it's going to be tough, tougher than it would be if you said that, in effect, we, uh, there is prosperity and there is peace. I mean, if a person who's not prosperous is going to oppose that. But by ordinary conventional standards, you would say the country is doing well economically and there's no war going on. So he should, be, he should win by five or ten points. But in view of the, one, the, the inherent division that's in the country no matter what, because also, I think Al Gore probably should have won in 2000, because as far as we knew, the, you know, the world was at peace and the economy was doing well. All the economic problems started afterwards. So there is this discontent, and also he adds to it. I mean, I don't know how many people, including my wife, say, why did he tweet that? How come he did that? And like last week with the uh, ambassador, I don't know if we mentioned this before or after the podcast, but that uh, her testimony, it was compelling, but it really had nothing to do with impeachment. I'm making the Republican argument. This would yeah. have nothing to do with impeachment. She was out of office before any of these events occurred, any of the, you know, the potentially incriminating events occurred. And you just say, thank you for your years of service. Were you there when the phone call was made? No. Did you hear the phone call? No. Did you ever hear uh, Giuliani say this? Did you ever hear that? She would have said, no. Thank you very much, Madam Ambassador. We appreciate your cooperation. Instead, he tweets out, and that, that was the issue. That's going into the weekend. So the whole weekend yeah. was talking about his tweet, and it built up more sympathy for her. I just want to, you come from the, and represent the Long Island suburbs, once a Republican stronghold, but um, Democrats now have a, a clear advantage in party registration. And like, you know, inner <clears throat> suburbs all around the country, there's a, I think, widespread evidence that they are turning against the Republican Party, largely because of Donald Trump, and um, that this is the biggest threat that to his reelection and to the Republican Party in general. Yeah, well, there's no doubt. Let's take uh, Long Island first, Nashua and Suffolk County. There's no doubt that they are less Republican than they used to be. Part of it's due to demographics. Part of it's due to, uh, I would say, the growing influence of women in politics. 
uh, on Long Island, they tend to be more socially moderate. Again, it's always dangerous when you generalize like this, but this is what, I'm not saying this now as a candidate, I'm saying this as a, trying to be like a political scientist. You look at these things. And, uh, and certainly the increasing number of African-American and Hispanic voters on Long Island, and they tend to vote Democratic. So all that's changing. Having said that, and the last election in 2018, Democrats swept almost everything on Long Island. Three of the four Senate seats in my district, which had all been Republican up till three years ago, were not, are now Democrat. The countywide elections in Suffolk County, Republicans running with no real opponents at all, only one by maybe one and a half, two points. So the Democrats were there. Now, having said that, it's, there's a, a solid ray of hope for the Republicans on that. Democrats really organized between 2016 and 2018 because President Obama carried my district by five point, four points and five points in 2008-2012. President Trump, without setting foot in the district or spending a penny in the district, carried it by nine in 2016. Democrats came back, swept it in 2018. But in this year's elections, the local elections, Republicans took back the seats they had lost in Nassau County. They held everything in the town of Oyster Bay, everything in the town of Islip, and picked up a Democratic seat, in uh, a county legislative seat in the uh, town of Babylon. So I think there's still a strong Republican Party, but it has to fight harder than it ever did before. But Republican Party right now on Long Island is stronger than it was uh, in 2018. Now, and also the Trump voters, and this is where Donald Trump has had a real impact on politics. You're right about how Donald Trump uh, was a negative influence on Long Island in 2018, because 100,000 more voters come out, 70,000 of them were Democrat. Trump voters stayed home, a lot of them, because they are Trump voters, not Republican voters, they're Trump voters. The anti-Trump voters, the only way they could vote against Trump was to vote against Republicans. They voted on the Democratic line. But he'll be back on the uh, ticket again this year. So it'll be but, interesting to see, is this going to be a 2016 year where he won a Democratic area by nine points? Or is it going to be the 2018 where the Democrats came close to sweeping everything? But you, would you acknowledge that the trend anyway is uh, moving towards Democrats uh, in oh, that area, that, yeah. that, that Trump is an anomaly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, leaving Donald Trump out of it. The, the uh, party, the uh, demographics are switching. The uh, people are getting more inclined to a Democrats. Having said that, there was still a basic Republican strength. I think Republicans have to adapt, and they have to run smarter races. I think they did this year. I think they, they ran smarter races. They have to get better organized. The Democrats did a tremendous job of organizing and getting out their vote in 2018. Also, in raising money, they really had this nationally coordinated program where opponents who could be basically unknown were getting one or two million dollars coming into them in that last you know, few weeks of the campaign. And I give them credit. I'm not being critical. I'm not, I'd be a total hypocrite if I said I'm against people at party organization getting out votes and raising money. I mean, that's, that's what kept the National Republican organization going for 50 years. So I'm yeah. not going to say and that. And they ran into some problems along the way. Yeah, doing that's, that. that's true. Yeah. yeah. So last question. Uh, I mentioned you were you know, part of a dying breed of moderate Republicans, which was once a hallmark of New York State Republicans with you know, Nelson Rockefeller, Jacob Javits, all those. Is there any future? for moderate Republicans. Yeah, and I, I don't, not to quibble over terminology, I consider myself more of a blue-collar conservative. Uh, a moderate is, uh, like, for instance, I am pro-life, but I'm also strong for organized unions, especially, you know, the building trades unions. I, I would say I'm more a pragmatic, blue-collar Republican than a... Uh, because I, I don't feel like comfortable around the Park Avenue moderates either. So they're <laughs> yeah, a little, uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and they don't feel comfortable around me either. So, no. Uh, but, you know, is there a place, let's say, for the, uh, 
That's a type of Nassau County Republicans. They were very pragmatic. I mean, on election night, if you went to Joe Maggiato's office and it was the inner sanctum, I was only allowed in for two minutes to drop off my vote totals and leave. <laughs> but you go in there and you had some of the leading business people, also the head of the uh, Carpenters Union, the Operating Engineers Union. They were in there. They were part of that inner circle. And uh, you don't find that with the National Republican Party. And I think as a party, when I came to Congress, we had... I think at least one Republican from Rhode Island. We had several from Maine, New Hampshire, quite a few from New Jersey, th at least three from Connecticut, two or three from Massachusetts. Now there was not one in all of New England. We have zero Republicans in New England, one in New Jersey. And downstate New York, you have two. There's, uh, you go from Albany south, and there's only two Republicans. So the party is being, here's where it becomes a problem, in that the party is being driven by the south and the west which is very much to the right, which is very much, they've never sat down with a labor leader in their life. They uh, come from pretty bright red districts, so they don't have to deal. And one thing about New York, whether you like people or not, we're all thrown together. I mean, you're there. You've met every race, religion, every union guy, every business guy, every environmentalist, every anti-environmentalist, they're there. Yeah. And so we can deal. Uh, I have a you know, guy like an Ed Koch, you have an Aldermato, where it's, uh, we don't fit into any of these categories that people from the Deep South would fit into. They're the ones who are based to a large extent calling the shots in the Republican Party today. Like, for instance, you mentioned gun control before. I'm not anti-gun. I don't own a gun. I don't really, uh, to me, I'm not anti-gun. But if you walk down the street and you took 10, re 10 Republicans, forget 10 Democrats, 10 Republicans, you walked up to them and you say, uh, do you think a criminal should have a gun? They say, no, no. Do you think a, a mental patient, using the terminology, like, should have a gun? No. You think a guy in the terrorist watch list, a Muslim on the terrorist watch list, I'm using it, don't use that against me, I'm just saying, if you put it in those terms, they say, no, of course not. I'm talking about hard right conservatives. But then do you say, do you favor gun control? And they say, absolutely not. Do you favor gun regulation? No. So I think getting at a lot of uh, the debate has gotten skewed. It really has. Why we, why we go to the mat saying a person on the terrorist watch list should be able to buy a gun or why a guy who may have a criminal record should be allowed to buy a gun. And when you, you know, it just makes, makes no sense. All right. I got one last question for you, which is if uh, President Trump called later today and said, Peter, uh, before you head out into the sunset, give me one piece of advice for my reelection campaign. What would you tell him? I would say run on your record, <laughs> tone down the tweets, don't punch down, you're the president of the United States, nobody cares if Obama had a bigger crowd than you did at the inauguration, nobody cares what some congressperson from Iowa or New York or whatever says about you, I mean, just just don't punch down, go straight ahead, fight for what you believe in, and uh, stress that you're representing middle-income people. Well, he can hear that advice by listening to <laughs> skullduggery um, and um, wise words from Congressman Peter King. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to retiring Congressman Peter King for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you soon.